What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Whiskey Web and Whatnot with myself, Robbie Wagner, my co-host, as always, Charles William Carpenter the Third, and our guest today, James C. Davis, who I believe is a jazz musicianist. Is that is that correct? Not Miles Davis. <laughs> not to be confused with. <laughs> I'm not a jazz musicianist. I was saying the uh, Twitter person that is actually James C. Davis. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I, yeah. <laughs> On Twitter, I'm Jams C. Davis. And I tried to convince him. I said, Jams, like you're a musician. Like, you want my, we could switch handles, but he wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, uh, no, I'm out. Yeah. So I'm James C. Davis, GitHub, and most places, but Twitter, whatever. Twitter's going to die anyway. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Elon's trying to buy it. And, and <laughs> we'll see what happens there. Yeah. He still needs to give me some internet. I need that Starlink. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Put some more money into satellites, buddy. Right. Yeah. So Chuck, did you actually get your two truths and a lie ready? Are you going to make some up or are you not playing? Um, I don't know. I'll make it up. Okay. We'll figure it out. I don't know. All right. Well, since James and I were prepared, we'll uh, go first and then you can go after us. So we have to do that before we do... Before we drink? Okay. It's usually the icebreaker, but we can drink first if you want. I don't care. I'm always down to pour some whiskey and do that first. Yeah, and that's called buying time. Oh, this one is not loud. No, it wasn't. It was a little... There we go. Oh, no, I got something out of that. Yeah. Glug, glug, glug. So today, we are having the Ragged Branch Weeded Bourbon. It's a Virginia straight bourbon whiskey, which is... Look at that, trying to do a little marketing there. Let's see, what else do we know about this thing? What is this double gold at the World Spirits competition? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, who sponsors that? I don't know anything about it. Mash bill is 66% corn, 17% wheat, 17% malted barley. It's a 90 proof, so it's a little lower than my tastes usually prefer, but it's probably better for me. It's only two <laughs> o'clock for me. Still have to do things. Hey, let's... It smells good. This distillery is actually just up the road from me. It's like literally on my road. Oh, wow. And I've never actually gone there and I've never tried any other whiskey. So I thought we should do it. Oh, Charlottesville. I don't know if it's any good at all. <laughs> it's literally on my road. It's a, a pretty place. Been to a few wineries there. Hmm. I'm definitely getting the corn. Yeah. Feels young. How old is it? I think it said four. I think they claim four. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what it has to be minimum in order. Yeah. There you go. For over four years. So at least four. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Kind of tastes young to me, which gets a lot of corn forward in it. The smell was a little more citrus with that mix to me. But now that I tasted it, it feels real young. Hmm. Yeah. The smell is interesting. I like the smell a lot. Mm -hmm. It's got a lot going on. I feel like less is going on in the taste. Yeah. But it has hints of mellow corn to me. I don't know if you've ever had that, but uh, yeah, I feel like it's um, it's like a very because the proof is a little lower and the the flavors aren't overpowering. It's, it's a very easy sipping whiskey. Yeah, I mean Chuck has descriptors usually, but I I taste a lot of uh, typical stuff like wood and alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> it's got a little little warmth to it. Yeah, it's a little like slightly bitter to me, almost like a citrus rind or something. But I'm not. And I was smelling that, but I'm not really tasting that. I'm just getting some of that bitterness from it. Yeah, for me, it's a little too young. Yeah, I'm getting the the tannic nature, like a little bit of pucker. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I could say it's something citrusy-like. 
I could see where it might make an interesting cocktail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like if you did uh, Boulevardier or something with it, or or uh, Gold Rush, which is like a bee's knees, but mm-hmm. instead of with gin, has bourbon. I could see that being very interesting tied in there. But as far as straight sipper, yeah, I mean, it's I guess it's easy to drink, but yeah, the the bitterness and like a little too much corn for me. So mm-hmm. if they have any that are older, they would probably try that. Not sure this one's for me. It's not like horrible though. So <laughs> yeah, we are going to, uh, yeah, in case they want to send you some free whiskey, you know, I don't want to ruin it. But uh, so we normally rate on a scale of one to eight. It's very scientific. We just make it up every single episode. So I'm going to go three on this one. So a little bit of background. We I think we said in one of the previous episodes that it's not really terrible unless it's a one or a two. So you're saying, you know, that's not... <laughs> The worst, but I'm just not a big fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just not a big fan. Yeah, it's not like this is disgusting, like pancake whiskey that we had. Yeah, but uh, it's just like I can tell where it has potential. It's just a little young for me. Yeah, I'm gonna go a little higher. I'm gonna say like four and a half. I'm gonna do a half tentacle there because it's. <laughs> I don't think it quite is as good as some fives I've given out, but I don't dislike it. So pretty good. What do you think, James? I'll give it a five. Probably because it's up the road. <laughs> yeah. The airplace is really pretty. I'm also not a whiskey drinker or connoisseur at all. So, yeah, it's all right. I've had better. Certainly. Well, there you go. But you got to, like, support the home team. So I get that. Yeah. It'll be great in a cocktail. I think you're right. That's it. All right. Two truths and a lie. Yeah. Who wants to go first? You want to go first, James? Or you want me to? I don't care. Uh, I can go first. Sure. All right. Lay it on us. All right. Two truths and a lie. I raced sailboats in college, have a PhD in physics, and own more than 10 different stringed instruments. Hmm. See, I don't want to cheat. I could probably look at LinkedIn and see if you have a PhD in physics. Don't cheat. <laughs> don't cheat. I might not put it on there. I might not brag about it. True. Yeah, it's, it's not pertinent, right? True. Who wouldn't talk about that? I feel like you've talked about before that you have 10 stringed instruments. I think that's true. What was the first one again? I raced sailboats in college. Okay. Because physics is very hard, I'm going to say, not that you're dumb or anything, but like that (laughs) you don't have a PhD (laughs) in physics. (laughs) Chuck, you have a guess? That's what I was going to go for. So, okay. All right. Yeah, you got me. Boom. (laughs) I have a master's degree in environmental science, but I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Physics was really hard for me. I only took one year and like would not have passed without lots of help. So. Mm. Yeah, it was rough. I was in an engineering program, like not computer engineering, like, well, it was computer designing hardware and physics. The physics I had to take was basically why I got out of that and did computer science instead. Nice. <laughs> so I was like, oh, this is good. It was getting rough. <laughs> but I did. I was at UT Austin. I, I raced on the uh, UT Austin sailing team, mm. got to travel all over and do that. And uh, that was super fun. And then I have, I, I do have a problem <laughs> with stringed instruments. <laughs> if you ask my wife, it's actually 10 different stringed instruments. I actually own more, somewhere between 15 and 20 actual instruments, I think. Oh, mm. Yeah. That was going to be my follow-up is like, is it three guitars or is it like 10 different? No, no, it's different. Oh, okay. Wow. I wrote them down. So I have an acoustic guitar, electric guitar, stand-up bass, electric bass, a mandolin, violin, a banjo, a dobro. I have a mountain dulcimer. I actually have three of them. If you know what that is, mm. a hammered dulcimer, and 
this, uh, I don't know where it is right now. Yeah, this thing, it's a pie box guitar. Oh. Which, it's not really a guitar. It's not really a, it's, I don't know what to call it. Anyway. Have you ever seen the beginning of, or have you ever seen the documentary It Might Get Loud? I don't know that I have. Uh-uh. So it's like Jack White, Jimmy Page, and The Edge. Mm-hmm. The intro is awesome. It just starts with like Jack White, like he's pounding like a nail into a piece of wood and putting like a metal string there and then puts like a Coke bottle on it and then adds a pickup in there and then plays something on it. And he's like, who says you need a guitar? Because <laughs> right. he's awesome. Right. Yeah. Anyway, highly recommended. I'm going to go next, Robbie, I think, all right. before I forget. All three are lies, first of all. <laughs> all righty. I'm going to uh, take a cue from James. Let's see if you can figure out which is a lie. I have a uh, photography, uh, Bachelor of Arts in photography. I am left-handed, and I have done five-foot errors on half pipes, on a half-pipe skateboard. Five feet past the end of the... Yeah, five-foot errors. Hmm. This is hard. I feel like I should know you better. Yeah. <laughs> like, are you left-handed is something I should have noticed ever. Yep. Uh, I'm going to say the photography degree is false okay james you don't know anything about me they all could be lies i'm gonna say you're not left-handed i just watch you drink with your right hand so right (laughs) well then technically they all could be lies because yeah i'm ambidextrous but i am left-handed and i used to skateboard as a kid so i've definitely done the half pipe thing and i've been watching a bunch of old skate things recently like gleaming the cube i have no idea why so, yeah, the lie is the uh, photography degree. The fun fact is I quit college, so I have no degree. I have taken a lot of classes and given a bunch of money to uh, colleges. I started out as an architecture major and did some, <laughs> like, digital design later and a bunch of art history and then, like, continued to pay them for, like, photography classes for a while. So I had dark room space. Mm-hmm. And then I went to film school for a year, too, just for fun. Yeah, colleges need more money, so... It's very good of you to give them more. Yeah, but they never call me as an alumni for a donation. They just call my wife and they're like, you got your donation (laughs) in those four years. We're good. Yeah, I did that too. In graduate school, for some reason, I changed my major like several times in graduate school, which is weird. (laughs) (laughs) I almost became a teacher. I uh, almost did a CS graduate program and then I ended up doing environmental science. I have a bachelor's in CS. Hmm. The school needed more money. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> We're doing our part for the community. Right. All right, Robbie. Let me bring up mine here. All right. I once met James Avery. I can do a kickflip on a skateboard. I once got a fortune cookie saying, you will move to a new place. And my family moved a few months later. I think the kickflip is the lie. You don't seem that coordinated to me. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to go with the kickflip. Yeah. i never got past ollies i could barely even do that Mm. but uh i skated a lot i just couldn't figure out how to like make the board do things Mm. interesting that's so funny we both had skateboard things (laughs) in our in our past yeah Yeah, i was really good at it for a long time and then i don't know i just uh wanted to be cooler and have a chance at prettier girls so i stopped skating (laughs) just played (laughs) soccer Sounds like you're making a uh, stereotypical I know. assessment there of certain types of people that might skate. <laughs> yeah, I know. 
<laughs> I'm just talking about what my options were. You know, I didn't live in California. I didn't grow up in California. So yeah, the skate scene where you grew up, I can imagine would be a little trashier than uh, <laughs> in California. <laughs> where did you grow up, Chuck? Uh, Northern Kentucky. Oh, okay. So skate around there and yeah. go over to Cincinnati, skate there some too. But yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't the California beach scene by any means. Cool. All right. Let Should me talk about serious things. Yeah, we can, I guess. Uh, All right. Yeah. So we just have a, a few notes for those that follow along with every episode. Uh, I'm trying to think, did we do one? Yeah, we did one in between. So you won't be right after Chris Kreitcho, but there may be some overlap because you guys are both part of the new uh, Ember TypeScript team. Well, not the team's not new, but the core team designation is new. We're official now. So yeah, I guess we can just start a little bit on like, the path to that, like, you know, how'd you get into Ember and open source and what brought you here? What did bring me here? Yeah. So I, <laughs> I got into Ember. Um, I went to work out, out here in Charlottesville for an organization. It's actually pretty interesting. They're a nonprofit tech company, which is kind of different, right? And they, it's called the Center for Open Science. They make something called the Open Science Framework. And so the whole idea there of like open science is like show your work like instead of just like here's a paper like believe me like document the whole scientific process and so they have this SaaS platform that the uh, center for open science has created for that and it's front end is an ember so i came uh, came to work there and had dabbled with ember but not really used it professionally at all and shortly after i got there there was this project to sort of re-implement the front end and the uh, director of engineering at the time said, we're going to keep it in Ember, but we want to use TypeScript this time. He was very into TypeScript. And so I was like, okay, cool. Like, how do you do that? And found that there were some people doing TypeScript in Ember. Uh, it was fairly nascent at the time. And there was this thing called Ember CLI TypeScript that would set things up for you. So we tried it out and it, it, worked, it worked pretty good. There were definitely rough edges need for documentation, the blueprints weren't very good, things like that. I had done some open source contributions before in my previous jobs, but just a little bit, not, not much, but I did end up contributing to this project. So an interesting thing about the open science framework is it's, it's also all open source. So it's nonprofit and all of the code is open source. And there have been people who have like forked it and done some stuff with it and open that. So through my work there, I was contributing more and more. I can't remember which happened first exactly, but basically that project for a while became the sort of de facto reference for like how to you do TypeScript in Ember because it was a real project that was done in TypeScript. There was this team that had formed, um, it was an unofficial team, but basically people working on this TypeScript project. And, and Chris Kreitcho, if you listen to, to his podcast, he talks a little bit about that. And they asked me to get involved officially because I was doing a lot of contribution and it kind of just steamrolled from there. I now um, work a company called Salsify and we do, the core of it is basically product information management. It's an e-commerce thing. So our, our customers are brand manufacturers. So anybody who makes stuff and we manage all of their product information for them and then also syndicate it to e-retailers to the Amazons and the Walmart.coms and it's all the way down the list. 
And our front ends are all Ember and TypeScript. So Dan Freeman, who is uh, one of the three, along with Chris Kreitjo and I, that make up the, the Ember TypeScript core team, he's how I got to Salsify. And uh, yeah, so that's where I am now. And then at some point, we decided to try to make TypeScript more official and push for that. And now we're an official core team. Nice. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about how it works. I think I touched on this with Chris and I, I don't remember the answer, honestly, but like the Ember CLI or dot Ember CLI file has like is TypeScript project flag now or something like that. What does that do? Like, do we not have to install Ember CLI TypeScript anymore if that's on or what is that for? Well, so yeah, so that actually leads to, to an interesting one of the trickiest things, and this is one of some of my first contributions, were the blueprints. So generating, be able to generate components and helpers and, and things like that. Because if we want them in TypeScript, then we have to create blueprints to create them in TypeScript rather than JavaScript so that they have all the type annotations we need, which meant for a long time, we're basically duplicating all of Ember's blueprints. So we have, and they originally were part of Ember CLI TypeScript. We just had all these blueprints. So every blueprint that's in Ember, we have a TypeScript version. We eventually broke those out into a separate package so that we could maintain that separately. They're very difficult to maintain because you have to maintain them for all sorts of different versions of components and things that, that they're complex. At some point we said, okay, this is insanity. <laughs> we shouldn't try to do this. They really need to be pushed back into Ember itself. And one of the cool things about the way TypeScript is done now with Babel is we can write stuff in TypeScript and we can use the, uh, we can use Babel to just basically strip out all of all of the type annotations and just produce JavaScript. And so that's basically what we've done and are, are kind of still working toward a little bit in Ember so that the blueprints that are actually in the Ember repo are all written in TypeScript. And if you don't want TypeScript, which is the default, that's the thing a lot of people kind of freak out and they're like, oh no, official TypeScript support, does that mean we have to use TypeScript? No, you're not gonna have to use TypeScript. We're not going to force that on anyone. Ever. <laughs> you say that now. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it was interesting. I, I was listening to, uh, to to Chris's podcast earlier, and he made a good point about TypeScript basically being essential, but not necessary. You know, it's kind of the way I took it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, we're not going to for force it. I think the Ember core framework team is pretty committed to that as well. So anyway, so we have the blueprints written in TypeScript to produce TypeScript and then we'll pass them through Babel to strip out the, the types and you just get JavaScript. So that, that new flag basically is like, oh, I don't want you to strip out the types. I actually want the TypeScript version. Gotcha. So the interesting thing is, so then we have those in Ember and we're actually working towards killing Ember CLI TypeScript. So this thing that we've had for a long time, we actually ultimately don't need. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll actually be opening an RFC hopefully later this month for that. So basically at this point, the only useful thing, really useful thing that you really need inside Ember CLI TypeScript is its blueprint, which is which is different from the blueprints that generate components and Ember things. It actually is a blueprint that sets up the TS config and file paths. And it, it basically sets up TypeScript for you. Mm -hmm. But 
you don't need it to do TypeScript. You can just run the TypeScript compiler on its own. It currently has things that can hook it into the build. You know, that's the, so that when there's a type error, your Ember build uh, stops and refuses to build. But that stuff is actually not that important to most people. In fact, some people hate it. <laughs> we, yeah, I turn that off. Right. And then we tell them <laughs> you can turn that off, right? You don't actually do that. Uh, so that's going to be the plan is to actually extract out the blueprint that's part of Ember CLI TypeScript and basically deprecate it. We'll support it for a while and make it so that you can just, if you want a TypeScript, an Ember TypeScript app, you just run the TypeScript blueprint to set things up and there you go. Nice. And then voila. I think we covered like how to get around this in Chris's, but the problem I have with build failing is if someone else's like add-on type is wrong and I just, well, I guess I could go in and override the types, but I'm not going to do that. So I just turned it off so that it's like cool with those being wrong. <laughs> yeah. I think he mentioned like skip lib check and stuff yeah. like that. But then if you're actually importing something from the add-on and using that and the types don't, match up right yeah it can definitely mm -hmm. it can definitely be an issue so that's the idea that it's it's great and can help you but doesn't necessarily need to be mandatory <laughs> and yeah if something's broken it, to me it's fine to put in a ts ignore and say okay like the types are messed up here we'll come back to it it's kind of like a uh, test coverage right it doesn't have to be types don't necessarily have to be 100 percent right all the time it's like most of the time and on the important places is where it really matters. And then again, and then kind of comes back to the whole right tool for the job, right? Like TypeScript is appropriate for some projects, but not necessarily all projects. Totally. Yeah. I think yeah. the bigger, more complex your project is, the more that it helps you. Right. I'd agree with that. That's what I was going to lead into is I was going to say, just like, do you have recommendations on when it's not a good idea? I mean, obviously there are, the benefits have been covered, you know, extensively. But like, has there ever been a time where you've, you know, wasted tons and tons of time just trying to get a type right? Or like, you know, what, under what conditions would you say, don't type this? I wouldn't say never type it when you're doing rapid prototyping, but because it could help depending, but there's definitely been times when I've chosen to not just because it could be a little quicker, not having to worry about types and setting that up and, and checking things there. I mean, I think it is important for complex code and especially like library code and in your application it it depends i've seen a lot of benefits and i've caught error i caught a bug today <laughs> with mm -hmm. typescript actually <laughs> so yeah depends okay i just thought of something else for all the imports from like you know you want to say this is the store service or whatever from the the types i forget what stuff lived here but there is a like private directory of ember and i've had a lot of trouble finding the types for that because it's private so it's not like giving you the types right right are there plans to expose more of those types or should we not be using that stuff or there are actually and it's funny because we were just chatting about this earlier today about an rfc needing to come there are a few things that are currently in the private namespace that you end up needing for type reasons we were talking about the need to describe that public api and document it because that's kind of been our rule mostly like if it's not documented as public api we're not going to type it mm -hmm. you know people have tried to open prs to definitely typed where the ember types are currently maintained for things that are not documented publicly and we say okay well if you think this should be public 
the first step is to go and lobby for that, go to the core team, say, okay, this, this is a thing that should be public. Why is it not? Let's get it documented and get that done and then come back and we'll look at typing it, you know, cause we don't want to type a bunch of private or intimate API. Fair enough. Which is a, an interesting challenge that we're having with, so part of the, the work we're doing to make TypeScript official is to move the types out of definitely typed and actually into Ember. So that rather than, okay, here's a version of the types that hopefully represent what's actually going on in Ember to, you know, up most of Ember, in fact, I think, so Peter Wagonet is very close or has finished converting everything in, in the Ember core repo to TypeScript. So we can actually generate types from the source, which is the best way to do it, right? <laughs> Rather than mm-hmm. some declarations that say like, this is, it's in JavaScript, this is what we think it is. One danger that has been brought up a number of times by core people and other people is that we don't want to expose everything. There may be private or intimate API stuff that we want to be careful not to put it out there in the types and people think, oh, I can just use this and it shouldn't break, you know, because Ember is very committed to Semver and backwards compatibility and stuff. And those mm-hmm. things that are not documented publicly could break. So that's a challenge. Yeah, definitely. That's the risk you take, Robbie. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm still going to use the thing I'm not supposed to use. So <laughs> I don't do that often, but I'm not scared of doing it because sometimes you have to use it for certain things. Yeah, it's fair. Chuck, pick a topic. <laughs> okay. <laughs> James, let's talk about monorepos and functional programming in general. Well, how do you feel about that, these things? Two hot topics. (laughs) Hot topics, yes. Syntax folks just talked about monorepos on Friday. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I like monorepos, personally. I've had good luck with them. I can can see Robbie smiling. I listened to that podcast, so I know know already how you feel about them. (laughs) Mm-hmm. I do listen to the show. Yeah. So I know how you feel. They have served me well, I guess. I think it's like TypeScript. It's if it's the right tool for your project and you have a, you know, a project that has multiple services and packages and they share concerns and it just kind of makes sense. The orchestration tools are challenging, but when you get it right and it works well, it's nice. Right. It takes some upfront planning, you know, like trying to patch that stuff on later on or trying to adopt it to an existing project can be pretty difficult, but uh, yeah. yeah. But if you do it out of the, out of the box, then it's kind of nice. Yeah. I think my big problem with any of the things that I've complained about endlessly on this podcast is that like most of it is over-engineered. Someone's like, Ooh, mono repo. Okay. I got to use a mono repo and have like 75 packages that I export. Okay. What are you building? Oh, just an app. Yeah. Then what is all that for? Like you didn't need that. Like some people, just want to over-engineer stuff or use like the low-level tools. Like I'm going to get React and then I want to bolt on Mm -hmm. 50 other packages and build it off like a bespoke framework all in-house because I don't like Next.js or whatever. And I'm just like, well, for the most people, unless you're a huge engineering org that really has some good talent that can do better than these frameworks, use the frameworks. They're there for a reason. So yeah, I think monorepos serve their purpose, but Relating it back to Ember, I am not thrilled with the add-on V2 format that requires, well, you don't, aren't required, but like 99% of the examples are monorepos. And so they're probably all going to end up being monorepos and I'm not excited. <laughs> mm, right. 
about the add-on is a mono repo. So like if you're creating a new add-on and so everything. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting, I guess. I think it's so you can have like a documentation and a test mm-hmm. different directory that are like different apps or, or packages or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm not really sure. It's something to do with like working better with embroider and tree shaking and whatever. Like there's a reason for the madness, but everyone has abandoned most of their add-ons except for like the handful of us that maintain the thousands of add-ons. And so I'm going to be the one that has to change like a hundred add-ons to the new format. And I'm just not about that. <laughs> it's to be seen. Yeah. It can certainly be abused during mono repos, but it's, it's worked out well for me and my usage of usages of it and things that I've done. Um, like Glenn, I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. Mm-hmm. We use a mono repo and it, because there's several very tightly coupled packages and it works out well. So, mm, yeah. Okay. So follow up question to that, to lead us into that. Mm-hmm. So if, if one of those packages you want to change, just one of them, and you want to like link that change to a repo that's consuming Glint, how do you do that with a mono repo? Cause that's one of my big problems. If you want to link it. Like yarn link or something. Yeah. Because usually when you have like 10 packages in a mono repo and you want mm-hmm. to change one, you have to do the whole build. You can't yarn link that package. You got to like build the whole thing. So I use, for all my linking, I use a tool called Yalk. Are you familiar with this tool? Y-A-L-C? Mm-mm. So much better than Yarnlink because hmm. it actually, yeah, just check it out. Okay. <laughs> Trust me. Like, it, Yalk. So it fixes this problem? It fixes so many problems with linking packages. It's also fun to say. It's also, it's Yalk. Yeah, it's fun to say. Mm-hmm. It actually publishes to a local repository. Basically, just like a little local repository. And then you install, Yalk install where you want it. And then you can run through publish and push and it ends up much better. Yeah. I've had tons of problems with yarn link. And once I switched to y'all, I actually wrote a blog post about it, which we can, uh, I can send to y'all. We can put in the show notes because. Uh, yeah. Don't even send it to us. The people that edit this will find it. And if they don't, okay, cool. you can send it to us. Okay. <laughs> I like giving them challenges. They get all the links. It's crazy. Okay, cool. All right. Y'all. Y'all. Uh, yeah. I like this. Y'all. I just want to say they need a cool logo though. They do. Yak, but it's a yolk. Yolk. <laughs> I mean, that's half the battle in open sources. If your logo is not cool, then oh, yeah. why should I use your framework? You might lose. Side note, technically, isn't Shepard a monorepo? Because the site is also in the repo? No, because it's not separate packages that I need to build separately. Like I can link Shepard somewhere and use that. I don't have to use Lerna or anything to build it. It just builds. It just builds. Not all builds. Like having separate packages is fine. Like a component library, for example, you might have 50 components, but you don't need to publish them as 50 different packages. Some of them are probably related and maybe you have a few packages, but they don't need to all be separate. Mm. Know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. You've referenced this before. This is basically the crux of your challenge is that you came across a component library where each button and table and each little thing was a separate published thing. Yeah. And all of a sudden I want to run post CSS. So I have to do that 50 times. I can't just run it at the root. Yeah. Anyway, tell us about Glint. That sounds like madness. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And I dodged the question on functional programming, but Yes, functional programming is good. I'm not a purist. That's basically, so is object. Like, you can use them both. Voila. That's my hot take. I like it. Glint, yeah. So I think it was 
EmberConf 2019. Don't quote me on that, but... Were we there in person or not? We were in person. It's the only time I've spoke at EmberConf in person. I spoke once in person and once virtually. So I gave a talk just kind of about using TypeScript and Ember. And because I was had been doing it a little bit there and talked about it and the experience and whatnot. And I think towards the end of that talk, I talked about how we don't have type checking in templates. And templates are kind of the glue that glues everything together. And so that's not great because we can type our components all day long, but we invoke them in templates. So there's nothing actually making sure that we've done that properly and passed in the right data and shapes and stuff. And I think it was funny because at the end of that talk, I called out Chris Kreitcho, who was like sitting in the front row and said, Chris Kreitcho is going to figure it out. <laughs> Ultimately, it was uh, mostly Dan Freeman. And then I kind of came in and did a lot of language server work at the end, figured it out. And we created this thing called Glint, which I sort of like Glimmer Lint. It's like Glimmer. It works on Ember components too, but works better on Glimmer components because they're better. <laughs> Type checking is basically a form of linting in the end, you know doing static analysis of your code, you know, it's not runtime. Yeah. So we made this thing that could actually do template type checking, which is, um, yeah, it was, there were definitely some challenges there. You know, there's this whole idea of taking a template, which is very much not JavaScript or TypeScript and converting it into something that looks like TypeScript and being able to map back and forth such that we can have support in your editor and and whatnot. And and yeah, so we created the, that that thing, I think it was over a year ago now that it came into existence. And it's been just this thing we've been working on ever since. There was a pretty quick realization that in order to do template type checking well, we didn't have enough information basically. So if you've used TypeScript with Ember, and typed a component, a Glimmer component, you have a type argument that you send a component where you say, these are the arguments so that this.args.whatever is properly typed. Once you get into actually type checking the templates, there's some other information you need. One of those is the type of element that you spread attributes on. So the splat attributes or dot, dot, dot attributes, I remember because if you're passing things into the component to spread on, let's say a modifier, some of those can only be spread on certain elements and various things and properties and stuff like that. So we needed to be able to say that. And then the other thing is, is components that yield. We need to be able to say, these are the block, we have name blocks now. So we need to be able to say, these are the blocks they yield. And then also these are the arguments that get yielded so that we know what is being yielded. So we basically developed a, an RFC for a component signature. So more than just the args, it was a whole signature that would have the args and the element and the blocks. We originally called it yields, but the core team wanted to call it blocks, I think. So And so we had to get that, and this is for Glimmer components. So we had to get that passed, to basically get that accepted and make those changes before we could really recommend using Glint for template type checking in, in your production number code, because the way we made it work prior to that is there was this custom import. So whenever you had a component, you didn't import from Glimmer component, you imported from Glint. I can't remember the import path, but some path under Glint that 
just re-exported under the hood component, but it had all this fancy type stuff to make that work. And we weren't recommending people go change all their code to these things. But once all that went through, we were able to change it. And it's just regular imports. And now we have template type checking and components. And at Salsify where I work, we're actually putting this into practice now. I don't know how many others are. I, I know there are a few. <laughs> There's literally dozens of us. I don't, I don't even know if there's dozens at this point, but there are people using it and it's really cool. Like it, it is really fun to work with and to see that, to be able to be invoking a component and get auto-completion on component arguments. We're still fairly early in it. I don't know if we've discovered bugs yet, but I'm sure we will because that's just one place that, you know, there's, there's no checking happening right now. Yeah, it seems like it'd be kind of fun to create a CLI tool something interesting like that, like approaching the problem of converting the template language into something that can be parsed and compared and and then read back. Yeah, it's a really interesting problem. Dan Freeman did a lot of the initial work on the mapping stuff, and I've done some work on that. A lot of the work I did was around the language server, which was interesting. We basically, then we had the CLI tool that could do it, but the real part of the real value of it is to be able to actually have all the tools that TypeScript gives you in your editor to be able to hover on a component and say, where is this component defined? What are its arguments? All, all this, these kind of things. And then have the red squiggles mm-hmm. that we all love or hate. <laughs> Depends on how many there are. In the editor. Yeah. So yeah, so I got to learn a lot about how that works and actually create a language server implementation that could take this information that we're getting from Glint and present it in a way that the different editors could understand. Yeah, information to act on. Are all of the changes to support that in the JavaScript side? Or like, do you add extra, like, do I need to write templates differently to use it? Or is it all in the component JavaScript? It's all on the component side. So yeah, you don't have to do anything okay. different in templates. Honestly, it will work. We were able to make it backwards compatible so that things will work with the just the regular args signature where we just pass args in. Okay. But it's just that it's incomplete. And so you if you try to if you have something that yields blocks, like you're gonna get type errors that said like there are no blocks because you didn't define any, for example. <laughs> there's no, you know, even just a regular yield, it'll say like, well, there's no default block. So you have to go in and add that. I think it's fairly straightforward, but <laughs> okay. we'll see uh, how it goes. We've been doing a lot of work on documentation recently. To- yeah, so I'll, I'll drop this into Swatch sometime. Swatch is all in TypeScript and Ember, and we'll see how it works. Cool. Yeah, you're, you're due. You must assimilate, Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> It'll help you, I promise. <laughs> yeah, something has to. We have uh, a little bit of time left, so let's move into some whatnot. Tell us about other than the however many 15 to 20 string instruments you have, like, what are you into? What do you and the the family get up to in, in Charlottesville area? Yeah. So we, um, we moved out here, I guess it's been about five years ago. We moved from Texas, from like the coast of Texas. So like flat as a pancake and on the water from Corpus Christi to the mountains. So I, I can actually see the Blue Ridge. Well, the trees, of them. but I can kind of see the Blue Ridge Mountains out my window right here. <laughs> yeah, we do. Uh, so I have two kids. They are uh, 10 and 6. And 
tons of fun. Oh, by the way, Robbie, congratulations in person. I guess I've congratulated <laughs> you over the chat. So yeah. Yeah. Welcome to fatherhood. <laughs> yeah. I heard, I heard your uh, show when you were talking about the kid just sleeping. Is that still the case? Are we still just sleeping? No, no, no we're doing a lot of yelling now. <laughs> it's weird because like 90% of the time the yelling means I want food, right? Sure. So like we try to feed him and then sometimes that's not the case. And then he just yells at everything. So like, I mean, you know, some people say it's like maybe colic or whatever, but like he's gotten to the point where he yells at a lot of stuff. But if you go to feed him and that's what he wanted, he won't even finish the bottle. He'll just drink like a couple sips and pass out because he's like happy now. <laughs> so that's a struggle too, to get him to eat all the food. And sure. you know, it's, uh, it's definitely getting different and he's been awake a lot more and still not all that interactive yet, but getting there. Yeah. 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 It's always a challenge when they can't tell you <laughs> yeah. What, they, yeah. what they need. You're like, is it this? Is it this? Yeah. Sometimes it feels like trying to debug type errors. Like, is it this? Yeah. Is it this? <laughs> mm-hmm. You just throw everything out at you can. Just can't put an any on there. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. TS ignore it. Just ignore it. Right. Uh, it's all type unknown. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. Yes. Not any unknown. Yeah. Yeah. We try to get outside a lot. You know, the weather is beautiful here in Virginia. It's miserably hot in Texas already. So, uh, mm. It's great here a lot of the year. Uh, we have a little camper, a little tow behind uh, travel trailer that we take. We're actually going to a little state park in North Carolina next, no, two weeks, I think. Yeah. Did you get that pre or post pandemic or mid pandemic? We got it pre. Yeah. You're OG. Yeah. We got just like a year before. We were just like, we knew, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Before it was cool. Before they were twice as expensive. Yeah, it was great over the pandemic. Like we did all kinds of vacationing when no one else could. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it was it was great. Self contained, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Chuck tried, but uh, didn't didn't go well for him. Yeah, so we, yeah, well, you know, we we have to shoot for the stars. So we got like a twenty seven footer, mm-hmm. and we decided we were going to drive cross country to see family and friends in Florida. And, uh, no, it was horrible. Yeah. For various reasons though, because it was huge and like we were driving into tropical storms and it was a little much for our car. We have like a Q7. So the, I think it has like 7,700 pound tow capacity or whatever. This was like 6,500. Yeah. So it took our gas mileage down to like eight miles per gallon. So then we're stopping and my kids Uh are, we're, we're two and five or maybe yeah, I don't know. Was it last year, year before? I, it's hard for me to understand anymore. What year is it now? Yeah. I don't know where <laughs> I am and what my name is. But uh, so young kids and they're in the car for, you know, what we thought, oh, we'll drive six hours every day. Just kidding, because we can't yeah. go anywhere. It's going to take, uh, you know, minimum of eight hours to get to any of our stopping points and some even longer than that. And so it was just bad, bad, bad. Actually, funny thing is we were stopped in Austin. We were like outside of Austin at, at some farm and that was kind of cool, mm-hmm. but it was a little off the grid and uh, we just decided to pull the plug and we stored it in Austin, drove the rest of the way, did hotels because we were just like, we will kill each other if we don't get COVID. It doesn't matter. <laughs> and then just picked it up on the way back and kind of like plowed through on the way back. But yeah, it's not for everybody. 
Well, yeah. And I, I think I would do it again in the sense of like, A, have a smaller one that's, you know, just for sleeping predominantly. Mm-hmm. Like this had just too much space, you know, which my wife thought would be great and happy for the kids and space to like stretch out and a door, you know, you can close the door to the bedroom and all that kind of stuff. Mm. So I would do a smaller one and I would just like, you know, go somewhere like, Oh, we're going to the grand Canyon or up to Zion or something like that. That's like mm-hmm. drivable and in, in less than a day. Yeah. Most of our trips are, are shorter and ours is 20 feet long weighs just a hair over 3000 pounds. So like much more. Mm. And right. But we actually bought it in Wisconsin. Mm was interesting we, we hmm. that's another story <laughs> we had a big road trip and then uh my wife is actually from iowa and over sometime over the pandemic we actually drove it out there and stayed in it for a full month oh wow with the four of us which is interesting yeah and we didn't kill each other yeah so. <laughs> so there you go you could survive in a tiny house yeah it was like a tiny yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. <laughs> maybe you have a calmer disposition than i do or something i don't know like we need space i don't know <laughs> Are you from Texas? I am. Yeah, I actually grew up in the Austin area, so mm. I'm there. And then I lived, and I lived in Corpus Christi for like 20 years. So you don't fit my mental stereotype for people from Texas at all. Yeah, I get that a lot. Uh, but Austin's <laughs> kind of different. So yeah, then I'm like, I'm from Austin. They're like, oh, okay, you're from Austin. Oh, okay, yeah, we got it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're like, where's your accent? You know, where's where's your horse? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I say Kentucky, people have that thought too. And actually, it was a very urban area where I grew up. So right across the river from Cincinnati and basically like a extension of, I wear shoes. <laughs> <laughs> Only dated a couple cousins, but they were like third cousins. So I think that's not, not a problem. Not illegal at all. Oh man. Oh boy. Yeah. And there you go. There's your what not in humor. There it is. Other than camper and stuff. Is there stuff in Charlottesville you're a big fan of? Yeah, I mean, former president's winery. Yes, yeah, there is. Mm. There's, there's actually <laughs> I, three former presidents' homes all in the all in the area. Mm. So obviously Jefferson and the Rock lives there. The Rock lives here, I've, so I've heard. Really? Yeah, I've heard. There's a lot of famous people that live have homes in the area. You know, it's uh, it's a pretty area. I'm I'm a fan. You can take the Amtrak up to D.C. too, if you want. Yep. I've taken as far as Baltimore so far, but I, I'm going to keep going, you know. I will go the other way, too, because it goes like that's really pretty. Oh, it goes to the valley and I think West Virginia or out that way. So, you know, that would be interesting. Yeah. I mean, I used to take the Acela up to New York for work sometimes. And that's kind of fun. Yeah. I never went any further than that, but it was easier than driving and dealing with a car to get into the city anyway. So you'd rather. Yeah. And it takes like half the time of driving somehow. It's magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like two and a half hours or something. Well, it's not, you know, it's not really any stops or traffic. Yeah. You're just going. Yeah. It takes me like five hours to drive to Philly, depending on the day. So getting to New York that quick is, I mean, it's supposed to be like two and a half hours to Philly, but it's not. I was going to say like the train is even shorter than two hours to Philly. If I recall, I only took the train once. Yeah. But have you ever tried to drive there? No. Why would I do that? I mean, you put it in the GPS and it's like two and a half hours and you're like, Psh, liar. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Never going to happen. Yeah. Mm. I've only been at like a, to Philly a couple of times and uh, we never drove. We just took the train. It was just so easy and I don't want to deal with parking in the city, all that stuff. Oh, yeah. 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 No, I like the train. I wish it was more like Europe where we could just take the train everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. We loved that. 
when we were in Italy. It was just like, you know, go anywhere on the train. Even if it's a place you think the train won't go to, you ask Chuck and he's like, yeah, you take this train to this bus and like you can get everywhere. Oh, yeah. You can get anywhere like rural nowhere land. Yeah. I uh, was I actually helpful to you. Is that what that was? Or Yeah. No, you were. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. It's pretty great. But you also got to think about the size, right? Like, OK, Italy is the size of what? West Virginia or something. It's like not that big. Not huge. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's always always amazing to me how small Europe really is. Yeah. And then it's a very dense population over a few hundred years longer than we've been here. So there's that too. Just a bit. Yeah. Yeah. We did get to uh, one place uh, when we went to Montalcino. There's uh, no way to get into town from the train stop, which we didn't really plan ahead for. Mm. I think there's a bus like once a day or maybe twice a day or something. That's right. We were just kind of stuck when we got there. I mean, how far is it? You could walk for sure, right? No, it was. You could just walk. No. Oh. No. <laughs> so what'd you do? Get on the train and go back or what? So we were going to a, a hotel and we just called them and we were like, guys, we messed up. Like, can you come pick us up? And they were like, yeah. Yeah. So they like sent a shuttle and came and picked us up. Well, there you go. See? Yeah. They're like pretty nice in that way too. They weren't going to be like, oh no, walk here. Jerks. Yeah. I mean, especially a hotel. Like, yeah, you're paying to stay there. They're going to accommodate. Yeah. That's funny. So not every place, but lots of places, mm-hmm. especially like when going to hotels and whatnot. There you go. Yeah. Have you been to Europe, James? I have not been to Europe. Mm-hmm. It's on my list. You know, we... can take your caravan. Yeah, can. <laughs> could rent one though. <laughs> you could, yeah, yeah. Lots of people do that in Australia, actually. I don't know. Do they? Yeah, hmm. it's a big thing to like RV around Australia because there's just like such massive stretches where there's nothing. So like this way you have, you know, you need to bring a bathroom with you. Have you been to Australia? No, I haven't. Yeah. Ship shape retreat? Sure. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. So I'm not a big beer person. I guess it's like pretty in some parts, but there's a lot of stuff that will kill you there. Oh, yeah. Bring a machete and a gun and. <laughs> yeah, a lot of my travels are inspired by food, and I don't know what the food inspiration is for there. I mean, I hear New Zealand is beautiful. I'm not that much of a Hobbit fan. And again, what's the food, right? Like, right. Yeah, that's the draw for me most of the time. Shrimp on the Barbie, right? Yeah. <laughs> I saw a thing, like, supposedly, Charlottesville, speaking of Charlottesville, the tiny little hamlet that it is, is like the next great food city or something like that. I don't know. Some magazine did a thing, which hmm. maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Southern food is yeah. good. I and mean, there's a lot of wine. Yeah, there's a lot of wine. Yes. There's a lot of wine. There's a lot of wine. Dave Matthews has a winery there. Dave Matthews does. His is pretty good. That one I like. Blenheim, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So food. I'm driven very much by food. Yes. Southern food is good. Big fan of that. Mm-hmm. I really want to go to Tokyo because it's like some weird epicenter of like all these crazy things and then i used to work for national geographic and um one of the trips you could do was like you go and fly in and out of tokyo and then like you basically do this big photography tour around the island so you get this like crazy urban experience and then you go out and see like all the rural areas of japan and that would be like an awesome that's the retreat that sounds pretty amazing yeah oh yeah Yeah. i want to go eat noodles all over the place. Mm-hmm. Noodles and just like a whole octopus in your bowl, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Weird stuff. <laughs> have you eaten octopus? Because I have. I have not. I am a uh, little kid that is picky with food at heart. Oh. 
I will eat some things, but I think I would do octopus, but it would need to be prepared well. Like I don't want literally just a whole octopus in my bowl. Like right. maybe peel it a little or cook it well or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Like that, don't they have a thing where like it'll be alive still when they give it to you and you have to like kill it and eat it? I'm sure there's that kind of thing. I don't want to murder anything. This is why I pay money, right? Like I'm yeah. not a hunter. Fishing is okay, but I, you know, I, I don't keep them and cut them up or whatever. And yeah, I'm not into murder. Yeah, just for fun. Yeah, just for fun. Because we, you know, we have all these modern conveniences and someone else has already killed some things. I better eat that so it doesn't go to waste. Yeah. Those are my thoughts. On a related note, I don't know if we've talked about this ever, but you know how they get steaks and they age them for like, Oh yeah. 90 days a year, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then you buy it at the store and it goes bad in three days. What's up with that? (laughs) So (laughs) it's very specific to the storage though. So when they're doing that, like dry aging or whatever there, it's at a particular temperature and there's particular humidity and like salt content and stuff to the air. And so that's what's happening. And it actually develops a little bit of a crust and then they'll like shade that off. So this crust has protected the meat and then, Hmm. Yeah. Gotcha. So there's a process there. I think I'm trying to remember. I don't know. I watch some cooking shows because it's fun. And then I can't remember. I feel like it was like on some cooking show that I saw this. It's like a famous New York steakhouse. And where that's basically what they do is they just just do steaks and they age all these different cuts. And they have this like crazy giant warehouse that's all controlled in that same way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just has always bothered me. Yeah. Why is it these things? Well, I mean, have you ever salt brined your steaks? No. So when you're doing that, you actually take it out and you put it on a little rack or whatever, and you put salt on top and you put it in the freezer or uh, that. Is it the freezer? No, maybe it's the fridge. I can't remember. I did it one time. You got to put it in cold, though. Might have been just the fridge because freezer wouldn't make sense because it would freeze it all. But yeah, it draws the moisture out and then you kind of like wipe that off and then it'll like soak back in, like super soak back in. Hmm. And then it makes it extra tender. Interesting. Yeah, I tend to just bring steak home from the store, leave it on the Mm. counter for like a few hours and then cook it. Mm. I don't do anything fancy. Sous vide. Sous vide's like the jam. Mm. I used to reverse sear. I tried that. It did didn't go well. Like, I mean, it was good, but it wasn't like, wow, this is so much better than if I just pan fried this steak. Like Hmm. it's, I do a fine enough job just pan frying it, I guess. I used to reverse sear. So I'd let it go at low temperature in the oven for like an hour, get within about 10 degrees and then super hot crusted up. Hmm. Now I just sous vide and then do that super hot crusted up. Well, We'll end this steak cast here. (laughs) Wasting a lot of time talking about this. Whiskey, web, and steak. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you liked it, please subscribe. Leave us some ratings, etc. And we'll catch you guys next time. Thanks for listening to Whiskey, Web, and Whatnot. This podcast is brought to you by ShipShape and produced by Podcast Royale. If you like this episode, consider sharing it with a friend or two and leave us a rating, maybe a review, as long as it's good. You can subscribe to future episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more info about ShipShape and this show, check out our website at shipshape.io.